Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When we discuss various atrocities and violent tragedies that have occurred across history, one of the most common topic that comes up is that of the Crusades. Now most of these Crusades, at least the most famous ones, were aimed at taking back areas that had been conquered by the Muslims, especially the holy city of Jerusalem. But another one of the most major Crusades in the Middle Ages was one that took place within European Christendom itself. The so-called Albigensian Crusade was an attempt by the Catholic Church to root out what they saw as a dangerous heresy that had erupted in southern France and northern Italy. The supposed heretics, at least if we are to believe the Catholic chroniclers, uh, held beliefs that were sometimes very different, indeed sometimes very diametrically opposite to the mainstream doctrines of the Catholic Church, and which, according to some scholars, may have had connections to various religious movements of antiquity, like the Gnostics and the Manichaeans. Now, this fascinating group in medieval Western Europe has become known as the Cathars. We're back in medieval Europe, a tumultuous time to say the least. As we've seen in previous episodes, a lot is taking place at this time. A lot of violence, of course, as the Catholic Church becomes increasingly interested in clamping down on perceived threats, both politically and religiously. But paradoxically, this is also a time of intellectual flourishing. Contrary to popular belief, medieval Europe gave us some of the most significant philosophers and thinkers in history, many of whom were hugely original and presented daring ideas. And in spite of the church's all-encompassing authority in all matters religion, we still see various religious movements appear at this time. Now, one of the most fascinating and noteworthy of these are the so-called Cathars, who posed perhaps the biggest threat to Catholic authority at the time. 
The Cathars flourished in Western Europe from the second half of the 12th century to the first half of the 14th, especially in the region known as Languedoc, which is located primarily in southern France. Teaching a doctrine of strict dualism and anti-materialism, the Cathars were harshly condemned by the Catholics as demonic heretics opposed to the central tenets of Christian beliefs and were, for this reason, wiped out in the Albigensian Crusade and the inquisitions that were connected to it. And thus, even before we start the discussion itself, we've already run into our first problem. You know the old saying, history is told by the victors, and the victors in this case was undoubtedly the Catholic Church. And when people try to wipe out a heresy, they tend to, like, really wipe it out, leaving no, well, as little evidence, both in terms of people, but also in writings and material evidence as possible. So when we try to retell and understand the doctrines and the history of these so-called Cathars, we don't have much in the way of first-hand material to rely on, from the Cathars themselves, that is. In other words, a lot of the material that we have to rely on come directly from the Catholic Church or from the Crusaders themselves, who are obviously the great enemies of the Cathars, the people who despise them. So, as is my usual refrain, we should approach these kinds of sources skeptically and carefully. But if we at least assume that a lot of what is said in these accounts are true, which they are in a lot of cases in these kinds of situations, despite possible biases, we can get some basic idea about what these Cathars were supposed to believe and who they were. They seem to have been a group that was highly critical of the Catholic Church and considered a lot of the Church's beliefs and rituals and practices to be misguided and even satanic in some cases. Uh, the Cathars appear to have been very strict dualists, so they had a dualistic worldview, where the material world was actually created by the devil himself. And the origins of this movement is contested among scholars and historians. Some have wanted to connect its doctrines with earlier famous dualistic movements of antiquity, like the Gnostics and the Manichaeans, who held ideas quite similar. According to this view, we can see a continuous tradition carried on from the Gnostics in the earliest years of Christianity, which later is supposed to have spread into other parts of Europe. But many other scholars aren't convinced, and instead view the dualistic movement of medieval Europe as unique and independent, despite the similarities. What seems somewhat clear to a lot of historians is that Western European Catharism in particular is connected to an earlier movement known as the Bogomils, which emerged in the 10th century in Eastern Europe, primarily in Bulgaria, Macedonia, Serbia, and eventually central locations like Constantinople. The Bogomils were also dualists whose ideas correspond to a great degree to the later Cathars in France, and there is likely to be a continuity between the two. Uh, this uh, Cathar movement seems to have appeared for the first time, or they appear in the historical record in the mid-12th century, although Bogomil doctrines may have spread there even earlier than that. The beliefs of the Cathars are absolutely fascinating and may appear shocking to Christians of a mainstream bent. As mentioned earlier, the central aspect of this teaching is dualism. 
Similar to groups like the Gnostics, they taught that there are two worlds, a divine, immaterial world of spirit created by the good God, and the material world that we live in, which has been created by the devil himself, and is thus seen as a very dirty and evil prison to be escaped. Originally, the Bogomils and early Cathars appears to have held what scholar Malcolm Barber calls a more moderate dualism, where God remains the sole absolute power and creator, including of the devil, who in turn has created the material world. We can see this narrative in one of the known works of the Bogomils, the so-called Secret Supper, which was also imported to the Cathar community. In a work by Malcolm Barber, it is described as such, quote, Passing through all these layers, he, in other words Satan, began to subvert the angels' allegiance by offering them a lower scale of obligations than they owed God. Cast out by God for his treachery, Satan took a third of the angels with him, but could find no peace in the firmament, so he presented himself as a sinner who had repented. The Lord was moved with pity for him and gave him peace to do what he would until the seventh day meaning by this the seventh age of the world. It was during that time that Satan created the earth and the living things within it, including man formed from clay made to serve him. The angels that Satan brought with him from heaven were forced to reside in these human bodies, thus being trapped to serve him until they could escape. We can see clear parallels to Gnosticism here, which also taught that an ignorant demiurge called Yaldabaoth had created the material world and the human body. In the above narrative, Satan has created the universe we know, but he himself was subordinate to God, hence we refer to this as a moderate dualism. It appears, however, that sometime in the 12th century, a more absolute dualism had taken root in the Cathar community. In this absolute dualism, good and evil, represented by God and the devil, are instead both eternal forces that have always existed and have nothing to do with each other. God has created and rules over the spiritual realm and Satan the material, and they appear to have an equal standing in some sense. This kind of absolute dualism we can find in another treatise known as the Book of the Two Principles, probably written later on in the 1240s. In light of this dualistic core, the Cathars interpreted many other Christian doctrines in similarly unique ways. Similar to the Gnostics, they rejected most of the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible and its prophets as proponents of Satan. They simply couldn't accept the idea that the God described in the Old Testament, who orders the destruction and massacre of various groups of people, to be the true good God described in the New Testament. Instead, it must be the evil creator Satan who is described here. Instead, they rely only on the Gospels and other books of the New Testament as sources, as well as some few books from the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible. Because they see the material world and body in such a negative light, it is perhaps not surprising that they also adamantly deny the human nature of Jesus. He only appeared to take on a human body, but was really only a spiritual being. He was never born of the Virgin, he never hungered or thirsted. Indeed, he was never truly crucified or died on the cross, but only appeared to do so. The role of Jesus is thus very different to the Cathars. He was sent by the true God to help mankind, but he did so by establishing the initiatory church which the Cathars saw themselves as taking part in, 
and whose job it was to help the spiritual parts of human beings escape from the evil prison of the body and return to heaven from which we came. You can kind of see why the Catholic Church would be so upset. With these doctrines, they completely rejected the Catholic Church. They saw its beliefs, its, some of its primary doctrines and rituals to be completely false. The symbol of the cross was a false idol to be rejected, the Eucharist and baptism through water were evil innovations, and the very foundational ideas about God and Jesus and who they were were fundamentally wrong, according to the Cathars. In any case, with this dualistic outlook in mind, the Cathars appear to have been able to create some pretty uh, solid structures of their own. Some historians even talk about a Cathar church, which had established itself to some degree in the Languedoc region of southern France. This supposed church had a clergy and a structural hierarchy in which different people had different roles. At the top of this hierarchy was the bishop, followed by the elder son, then the younger son, and lastly the deacon. Now, the name for a more ordinary, semi-lay person who nonetheless was initiated as an adept in the Cathar teachings was called a perfecti. And regular lay people connected to the faith were simply referred to as good Christians. Quite a complex structure, as you can tell, which suggests that the Cathars may have been quite established as a movement. As is usually the case, the practices and obligations of the Cathars could differ depending on where in this hierarchy you stood. But in general, it can be very difficult to try to reconstruct the practices that the Catharists would uh, perform. Here, we also had to rely on hostile sources. One of our main sources for the Cathars generally is a chronicler and Cistercian monk called Peter of Val de Cernay, who is definitely not a fan. Nonetheless, he describes the Cathar ethics and practice thus, quote, The perfected heretics wore a black robe, claimed, falsely, to practice chastity, and renounced meat, eggs, and cheese. They wished it to appear that they were not liars, although they lied, especially about God almost unceasingly. They believed that they could be saved without restitution of what they had stolen and without confession and penitence, so long as they were able to recite the Lord's Prayer and ensure a laying on of hands by their masters in the final moments of their lives. As hard as it may be to find morsels of truth in such hostile accounts, Peter does here allude to some practices that are very commonly attributed to the Cathars, including by other less emotional accounts, including that the Cathars lived a life of chastity, that they had a rather negative stance towards uh, sexual relations, uh, as well as certain dietary restrictions, primarily a kind of vegetarianism where they would only consume uh, fish for the most part, but would uh, deny themselves the meat, uh, cheese, and eggs, and among other things. The Perfecti also appears to have taken part in some rather rigorous fasts for three days a week where they would only eat uh, water and bread, as well as more longer fasts for 40 days at a time. Now most of these practices are somehow connected to their very negative stance towards the material body. Generally, sex was seen as something very dirty and sinful, even when performed between husband and wife. Not only did it satisfy the lusts of the physical body, but also served as a means of creating new material life, which wasn't to be preferred. 
We find here similarities with the strictly dualistic religion of Manichaeism, which had a similarly negative stance on all things material. While regular Cathars still had children, of course, since the community survived and was passed down through generations, but there seems to have always been a kind of uneasy attitude towards procreation, which is well expressed in a tragic comic account when a Cathar woman tells her pregnant friend that she should, quote, ask God to free her from the demon which she had in her belly. The human being sought to be freed from the material world, that is the creation of Satan, through being initiated into the Cathar church and to practice Catharism, basically. The souls of humans were thought to reincarnate into new bodies until this release is achieved. Naturally then, they denied the common doctrine of the physical resurrection of the dead at the end of time, as well as the day of judgment. Instead, much like the Manichaeans, they believe that in the end times, the creation of light which resides in the material prison will be separated from evil and the two worlds will be distinct again. And to be initiated into the Cathar Church meant that you took part in what is perhaps the most important and characteristic ritual or practice of this movement, known as the Consolamentum. This was a kind of initiatory ritual, similar in role to the Catholic baptism, but very different in its particulars. Indeed, the Cathars in this context very much criticizes the mainstream practice of baptism through water, which the Catholics and other Christians took part in, partly because it is performed on infants, who don't grasp the significance of the ritual and can't choose to become initiated, but also because water is, after all, material, and thus dirty. It's the creation of the devil, after all. Instead, the consolamentum, sometimes known as the, quote, baptism of the spirit, is a complex ritual of several stages. The person who was to be initiated first went through a long period of preparation before the ritual itself took place. Then the ceremony included several invocations and prayers, including a variant of the Lord's Prayer, and finally a, quote, laying on of hands by good men. So literally, several initiates into the church would simultaneously put their hands on the head of the person and formally initiate him. And after this, the initiate would also be taught how to give the consolamentum himself, especially to the sick and dying. This practice is probably what Piero of Valdecernay was referring to at the end of that earlier very critical quote. And I'll quote again, They believed that they could be saved without restitution of what they had stolen and without confession and penitence, so long as they were able to recite the Lord's Prayer and ensure a laying on of hands by their masters in the final moments of their lives. What he's referring to here is the idea that when the person is given the consolamentum and is initiated, all his previous sins are basically abolished, um, and he is sort of purified, his soul is completely purified. And that doesn't me mean that he can't sin in the future, of course, and he may have to be reinitiated as a result, but this is the basic idea, that when someone is given the consolamentum, their sins are basically forgiven, you could say. And this is also connected to another very important aspect of this uh, ritual tradition, which is also what Peter refers to in his quote, which is the idea that old people or, or people who were dying uh, generally were given the consolamentum by Cathar priests uh, as a way to help the dying person by giving him this ritual, this initiation at the end of his life. He could uh, face his own death on the best terms since he had just 
been given this very sacred rite, which had, at least to some degree, absolved him of previous uh, sins and purified him to some degree by becoming a Cathar initiate. All this shows that the Cathars appear to have been a very unique and fascinating movement and part of medieval France and medieval Europe, which differed quite dramatically in some ways from mainstream Christianity. It's hard to say for sure just how widespread and influential this movement had become, but many sources suggest that they had gained the support of various local lords and leaders in southern France at the time, who may have helped them by sheltering them, giving them places to stay and food and, and, and so on, which created a kind of network, an infrastructure in which this uh, Cathar community could uh, thrive, at least to some degree. In the 12th and early 13th centuries, cities such as Toulouse and others in the Languedoc region appears to have housed a, at least a significant number of Cathars, even if they probably never were the majority. The Catholic Church had been very uneasy about the Cathar movement for a while. There were debates that took place between Catholic representatives and Cathars, and attempts here and there to try to counteract their spread, but in the early 13th century they had had enough. After a papal delegate was apparently assassinated by people connected to the Cathars while on a mission in France in 1208, Pope Innocent III decided to initiate more drastic measures. This was the start of the Albigensian Crusade. From 1209 and for about the next 20 years, the Catholic Crusaders went on a violent campaign to destroy the Cathars once and for all. Many cities associated with Cathar activity became under siege. Cathars themselves, as well as their supporters, were often captured and burned alive, burned to death and assassinated. This included many civilians, as the massacres didn't always discriminate all that much, to the point that some historians want to refer to this event as a full-blown genocide. In a famous story about the massacre of Béziers, the crusader Arnaud Amalric is said to have been asked how to distinguish between Catholics and Cathars when they sort of entered the city, to which he coldly replied, quote, Kill them all, God will know his own. There's quite a good possibility that he never actually said this and that this is a dramatization of the event, but it sort of captures the spirits of these crusades. A lot of people were killed, including civilians, and the crusaders didn't always really distinguish between who was who. In the course of the Albigensian Crusade, which officially ended in 1229, the crusaders managed to conquer and subjugate many cities and regions associated with Cathar activity, as well as leaders who were suspected of having housed Cathars or supported Catharism in some way. But in reality, this was only a minority. Many places of Cathar activity were still outside of their control, even by the end of the crusade. But nonetheless, the crusade had begun the process which led to their decline and the eventual disappearance completely of the Cathar community. After the crusade ended, the Pope and his church would continue the fight by sending inquisitors continuously into regions associated with Cathar activity, uh, a process that continued for most of the 13th century. By the middle of the century, the infrastructure that supported the Cathar movement had completely been dismantled, which left its adherents without an organization and often forced to be on the run. Barber writes, quote, 
By the mid-1240s, the Cathars of Languedoc were oppressed from three sides, by the weight of royal military and bureaucratic power, by the loss of their traditional secular supporters, and by the determined and systematic prosecutions of the inquisitors. And that, quote, Catharism had been driven down the social scale, leaving few noble supporters, while most of its ministers had been captured or had fled to Lombardy. Bernard Acquier, even if he had had the capability, was in no position to study the literature of his faith or to convey such learning to others. Instead, he functioned only in small and uncoordinated gatherings of believers or in meetings with individuals. And this development continued for the rest of the century, with the exception of a brief revival led by the Autier brothers, Peter and William, who were captured and executed in 1309 and 1310, the Cathars never really recovered from the persecution to the point that by the mid-14th century we find little record of their existence at all. The Catholic Church, through their crusades and the Inquisitors, had managed, it seems, to quell this movement and restore their own power in regions that had been influenced by Cathar ideas previously. And you might think that the narrative is over here, but there's a twist to this story. In fact, the Cathars, as we understand them, may have never actually existed. Indeed, many historians studying the subject today argue that the idea of a unified heretical movement in Languedoc is more of a construction by Catholic chroniclers and modern scholars than it is based in actual reality. Instead, the quote-unquote Cathar Church is a specter created by the Catholic Church at the time in their fear of losing control, and that what we know as Catharism was actually a manifestation of social and political circumstances in the region at the time, rather than an actual religious movement that can be considered to have been unified into anything resembling a church or holding specific dualistic doctrines. The whole version of events that I have presented in this episode can be considered the traditional narrative. It is the version that scholars have considered true for a couple of centuries. But in the last few decades, many scholars have seriously challenged this narrative. As I hinted in the beginning, there are some serious problems with our sources. They are almost exclusively either hostile, written by Catholic chroniclers, or written at a later stage. These skeptical historians don't deny that the Crusades or Inquisition took place, of course, but the very idea that there was anything like a European-wide counter-church. The topic quickly gets very complicated once we take these contemporary scholarly debates into account. And regardless of your stance about this problem in particular, there's no denying that the Cathars, as they have become known to us through history, have played an important role in the modern world as well. As is often the case in the 20th and 21st century, there has been a kind of revival of the Cathar doctrines of Catharism, the dualistic ideas of Catharism. Figures in the 20th century, like Roach and Simone Weil, rekindled an interest in Catharism as an expression of an ancient secret religious tradition that had been continuously persecuted and oppressed across history. And there are even communities today who actually self-identify as Cathars and practice what they believe to be a continuous tradition from this medieval church and even all the way back to things like Gnosticism. In this episode, I have given you a basic overview of the traditional narrative of the so-called Cathars, a fascinating religious community of dualists in medieval France who, 
if we assume that they actually existed as such, worry the Catholic Church to such a degree that they brought on a full crusade against them. Above all, the story about the Cathars shows us how diverse, uh, complex, and vibrant any religious tradition or historical context will inevitably be, even in a context like medieval Europe, which is often considered to be very strict and rigid. I'll see you next time. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Black Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.